Welcome to today's episode of Fire in the Belly. This is where we get to hear some pretty inspiring stories from some amazing people. You know, it's always an absolute pleasure to sit down, take time out and have a warts and all conversation about their journey. I'm always intrigued by what it's taken for people to get to where they are today. And hopefully in this interview, we get to hear some more about that. From this, my mission is to help people to find their own fire in their belly. And from that, to live the mightiest version of you. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy today's guest. Success is a process, not an event. Hello, and welcome to the Fire in the Belly Show. Today, we have myself, Mighty Pete, and we are joined here today by the Gerilyn Jondreau. Good morning to you. Good morning, Pete. Fabulous name, first of all. I'm going to bring that straight up. So you're saying that your name is French? Yes, yes. Jondreau is French. We don't make this this beautiful dr sound in english but yes it's a french name awesome awesome so listen first of all tell us who are you where are you from and what do you do um well who am i i'm gerilyn and i live in california near san francisco i'm a publisher and psychotherapist now turned author i've been writing ghost writing and editing books for 20 years always for other people and this is the first one that i am the sole author And it's about my mentor of 15 years, who was an author herself. Uh, She was actually an Upper West Side Manhattan socialite, and she ran off to the Venezuelan jungle back in the 50s, long before anybody called it the rainforest. And she, after five trips to the Amazon, she didn't go as an anthropologist. She went as a diamond hunter. She went on a diamond hunting expedition with an Italian count and um, ended up writing a book called The Continuum Concept which became a child-rearing classic. It's really a treatise on human nature. And it had a huge impact. It's still, it's been translated into 20 languages. So, uh, and it still sells 45 years later with no promotion whatsoever. Now, Gloria Steinem, who is uh, endorsed the book and was a friend of Jean's, she told me she still gives Jean's book to everybody she knows who's having a baby. So that's the importance of Jean's Jean's work. If you've seen a woman with the baby in the sling on her hip, that started in the, uh, well, it didn't start. It became, it came into vogue after going at, you know, not being popular. Thank you. Uh, Queen, is it Queen Victoria who invented the pram? Yeah. You know, like, so, yeah. the baby, let him cry himself to sleep. Like that's just all wrong in terms of our evolutionary expectations. So Jean started that baby wearing trend back in the 60s when it became 70s, rather, among the hippie generation. And that then spawned the attachment parenting movement, which has been huge and is now kind of being crafted a little differently, hopefully, with this work I'm doing with Scott Noel. Because although Jean's book was the original inspiration for the attachment parenting movement, there were a couple of things that that kind of got missed, that got dropped out in translation that are very, very important. So I personally have not had children, but I am. Um, so to answer your first question in a short, I am the torchbearer for Jean Lidloff's work and starting a renaissance for her ideas, which are really about what we are as human beings. It's not just about child rearing. It's really about human nature and how to bring out the best in humanity. Wow. That, that's, that's <laughs> not a small topic. That's pretty impressive now. What were you trying to get across in the book? What was the, 
what was the main theme, if you like? Well, so uh, the continuum concept was a difficult read for a lot of people. I devoured it in an afternoon, but genes, um, genes from an earlier generation, long before there was such a thing when tweet meant what a bird does. And she could write paragraph long sentences. Now, in today's world, who follows paragraph long sentences? You lose them after two lines. So uh, and it really is very philosophical. There's a lot of story in it. But this book reads like a novel. People pick it up and they're like, I couldn't put it down. I'm a professional writer and I put my heart and soul into it. So and I although I've written, in fact, I've only written and been published in nonfiction. My greatest love is fiction. So it reads like a novel. And so it gets Jean's message across in the context of this adventure story that people that really makes it land. You know, story is the most powerful teacher we have. And so it's it's it really is about giving birth to a renaissance for her ideas and bringing these things back to the forefront because they've you know, this in this day and age, people many, many people have said to me, oh, my God, I read that book five years ago and it changed my life. But it's not on the on everybody's mind and on their, you know, in their conversations these days. So I'm hoping that it will come back and that some of the information that can really help parents will come through. I mean, that, that is the obligation or the the privilege, I suppose, of, a, of an author is to put across a message. And, mm-hmm. you know, you get into people's intimate thoughts, you know, and you get to mix in with that. But also it happens while you sleep. It's a, it's a passive asset in many ways, right? That's beautifully said. Yes. I'm not sure what you mean in the context of this that happens while you sleep. It is something I work with authors as a writing coach. And I always tell them when you get to the end of a sentence and you can't think of what to say yet, go to sleep. Because whatever problem, whatever wall you hit up against in your sleep, your unconscious is going to provide you the next step. So don't worry, you know, it's sometimes you just have to trust that that's what you've got to give it today. So, but what did you mean in the context that you asked the question? No, I think, well, I mean, once, once it's committed to paper, you know, the sort of letters, words, symbols, et cetera, are eventually get to a page, get edited, get, you know, and then it goes out into the outside world. At that point, you've got to let it fly and, and people pick it up, you know, first thing in the morning, last thing at night, they read it nonstop. They read it over three months, whatever it is, but you know, it's, it's, it's there. And it's, it's sort of, it's following its own little journey. It's like, you know, let it tweet and let it fly. Yeah. I know. I know what you're saying. And I often, I often wonder when I'm going to sleep, like I wonder who's reading it right now. Mm. I think about that, you know, or in the morning, I wonder who read it last night. You know, what am I email? What emails am I going to get from people? I love actually getting the emails from people saying, oh, my God, I read it. Or I'm at the part where she got on the boat to go to Europe, you know, like, oh, my God, it only costs one hundred and fifty dollars to sail across. So it's so interesting to hear from people the the little details that they pick up. So, yes, it does live in. Now I know what you meant. Like, yes, it's in my in, while I'm sleeping. The book is out there doing what it needs to do. So. Wow. No, that's awesome. So tell us before we, we sort of really get into it, really, I suppose. What what does fire in the belly mean to you? Oh, that's so interesting. Um, well, I'm a fire sign, according to the Taoist priest I worked for for a while as his editor. Um you know, the, my first association when I saw the name of your podcast was with, is it Sam Keen who wrote the book, Fire in the Belly? 
there's there was a very popular yeah. book in the men's movement early on and um so that was my first association but for me i'm a martial artist i trained in taekwondo and hapkido throughout my 20s so i know about the dantian and i know about the you know the 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 fire in the belly is very literal for me like i can feel it and when i meditate my attention goes to the dantian behind the navel where that solar plexus center is mm. so I don't have a conscious relationship with it like I did when I was training every day in the dojo, but there is there is something to be said for the organs as a source of energy. And I focus a lot on building energy. I'm in my 60s and it's amazing. <laughs> you know, I go to bed 1030 every night by 1030. I start to wind down at 915, 930 because I don't have the energy to go all night long like I used to. But there is ways to cultivate your energy. And some mm. of it is that, that fire in the belly, like to have the fire, to have the, the mitochondria. I've been focused for many years now, as have a lot of people in the health and nutrition arena, into building the mitochondria. Now, that's a whole other conversation. But um, since you asked about fire in the belly, there is something about the prana, the building of prana within the body that allows us to do more in the world. So that's what it means to me. Have you always had that in your life? Is it something that comes and goes, you know, for you, that that sort of that passion, that fire in the belly, as you say? Well, you know, it's funny. Um, a woman who was like one of my mom's best friends when I was a little one, they were both having babies at the same time. She said, I had never saw a baby like you. You just had this energy, you know, and I'm often told that people are like, wow, your energy is huge or whatever. And I never know. I'm only five foot two. So it's like, well, I don't know what you're talking about. But I knew I know I do have there's something partly it's because of the near death experience I had. But when she told me that that was when I was an infant, it's like, OK, apparently some of us come in with a whole huge whatever. And maybe everybody has access to it, but their early life experiences dim that light. I'm not exactly sure, but from that's the only clue that I would. And I've always been fiery. I mean, I have three brothers and both of my parents, 40 years apart. My dad died 40 years ago before he died. And recently my mother said to me, you were more trouble to us than all three of our sons combined. I'm like, right, okay. <laughs> Part of me is like, yes. <laughs> I did my job and the other, you know, it's just very interesting. I do have a lot of energy and, you know, now I'm 16. It's like, Oh, I wish I had more. I wish I had more of that youthful energy, but it is one of those things. Sleep yeah. is the most important thing. If I don't get a good night's sleep, it's sleep is so important. I think hey, it's listen. even more important than what we eat <laughs> is getting good sleep. I'm with you. Having three young kids, believe me, it's. Uh, <laughs> I used to be an insomniac, but it's like, yeah, just bring some kids into your life, and believe me, that'll that'll knock the insomnia mm -hmm. right out of you, because you'll take any sleep you can get. You know. So, mm -hmm. tell me, what's what's your earliest conscious memory? Um, this is interesting. I um, I plumbed that for years. I mean, as a psychotherapist with some psychodynamic background, I was always interested about that. Mm. Um, the, in jungle gene, there is a subplot about 
I call it the blind spot. And I believe that our earliest memories are often linked to the formation of the negative ego or the defensive structure that almost everybody I know has. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, these indigenous people Jean lived with, lived with in the 50s and 60s. Well, I, don't, I wasn't there, so I can't tell whether they had a defensive structure or not, but everybody I know does. And I think it links to that. So my very first experience, memory, I think I was three or four, and it was just of being out in the yard next to my house on a sidewalk with the ivy around it. Like, why would a person remember that? The thing about our earliest memories is those, so all the information is deep in the recesses of the brain, but what we actually remember are they get memory tagged during sleep. Actually, these memory tags occur during sleep, but it's always when it's something that stands out as completely different than anything you've ever experienced before. That's what tags it for long-term memory. So I'm like, well, what is it about that experience that was so different? And that inquiry throughout graduate school, throughout all the years I was trying to figure myself out. I mean, most of us go into psychology because we're trying to figure ourselves out. Guilty as charged. So I, I didn't manage to figure it out in graduate school. It was when I got a hold of Jean's book that I started to figure out like how I tick and why. But so my experience, I did some very, very deep work that informed what I call the blind spot work that I do with my clients. And it really is to go back to, to find your way back to that actual moment in time, which isn't easy to do. It's not about regression. It's really about coming into the full presence of whatever occurred in that moment. And I won't tell you what occurred for me. You have to read the book, but I'll just give you example of why those things happened. My ex had his earliest memory was he lived in San Francisco as a kid. And his earliest memory was when his mom sent him downstairs to buy a loaf of bread because there was a little corner store below. Now, why would someone remember that? Because it had never happened before. You know, all of a sudden mommy is sending me to get bread like that is a, a I always say it's like first the fish is in the bowl and then the fish gets thrown up out of water and it's like, oh, wow, there's something other than water and then plump back down in the water. So that memory stands out and it's because she had just had a baby and she couldn't go down to the store. So she gave him it was probably 40 cents for a loaf of bread back then. We're talking long, long time ago. So that's the thing about early memories is they usually mark there's some marker moment in our lives where things are fundamentally different than they have ever been before for us. And that's and for a lot of people, it's something traumatic or like getting a loaf of bread isn't something traumatic. So it's not always that our earliest memories are traumatic. They're just notable in some way for the for our consciousness and our psyche. Now, Jean had memory from her very, very earliest moments out of the womb, which is really unusual. Most people's earliest memories are somewhere between three and five years old. But it's it's anybody's guess why some people remember so early on. It is fascinating, isn't it? I mean, uh, it's well, I mean, tell me this, where do you sit in terms of, uh, have you been here before? Do you think is this is are we here multiple times? What's your take on this? Oh boy, I try not to form an opinion about stuff that I don't have direct experience of, and I don't have direct experience of past lives. I have heard, you know, in fact, I was just listening to something the other day. I don't remember what it was, but 
you know, they say there's evidence of past lives, like people come in and they died a certain way and they have a scar on their body or, you know, they look back at this. So there is some evidence. Uh, at this point, I'm reserving judgment. My preferred storyline is that in the collective unconscious, everybody has experienced everything and that you can actually tap into past lives of anybody and everybody, you know, like if there's a reason to, like if we are all in this all one consciousness where the whole thing is evolving at once and we individuate and then we go back to the one, you know, all that kind of fabled new agey kind of stuff that is actually rooted in very ancient old age information. Um, I, that's the best I can think about it. I, I reserve judgment on a lot of things because I, when I see people who have a strong opinion and they're sure they're just give me the creeps. Like, I don't know. I just want to stay curious. Like I'm open, I'm open. And, and I like to look at things and say, well, what if, what if not that, what, what, what else would explain this? And you know, this whole thing with COVID is a big, I mean, this, this to vax or not vax is tearing families apart. You know, and there's two very opposite stories about what's going on. So what do you believe? I mean, for me, it's like, you just have to follow your heart and listen to your gut, you know, like try not to just follow the crowd, try to, but there are two big crowds, you know, there are two big crowds moving across the globe about what's really going on. Who has the true story? I'm not sure we can know. I'm not sure I want to know. Yeah. Or could, or, or could even grok it, but the, the certitude with which people are, and of course it's, I don't really want to go down the COVID pathway, but whenever you're talking fear, fear is the deepest, most primal motivator. So it's, it's understandable actually that it would be polarized because people are really afraid. Both sides are really, really afraid. Yeah. So yeah. it's pretty strange, but let's, let's focus on something else. Hopefully that won't be a timely topic a word a year from now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hopefully it, uh, it, uh, it goes back to whatever, but yeah, no, absolutely. I, I find that, you know, it's, it's fascinating that there, but tell me what, what was mini Gerlin like, you know, what, what was the mini version of you? Mini version of me. Well, my mom told me this story. So recently with COVID, I lived mm -hmm. with my 90-year-old mother for a year. I happened to be at her house in Southern California when the lockdown hit. And I have three brothers and we all decided it would be good for me to stay. You know, in the early days, the older people weren't even supposed to go to the grocery store. So I stayed and stayed. I fell in love with the beach again. You know, I grew up down there and we have the San Francisco Bay here in the Bay Area, but it's redwood trees and an hour and a half drive to get to a real beach. So um, I had the deep pleasure of actually living with my mom. Who gets to do that at my age, you know, and, and discover a person, you know, discover someone that you actually really like. I mean, it was so beautiful. I have this deep love for my mother right now. Um, in fact, I, last night she was, she called me really upset and it felt like the roles were reversed. You know, like I talked her down and I did the problem solving, you know, it was really funny. But anyway, back to your question, she told me, that was all a lead in to what she told me recently. She said, yeah, when you were four years old, you ran away from home and, you know, you took your little bag and you went down the street and then you came back 10 minutes later and you said, I forgot my money. <laughs> I didn't have any money, but you know, I forgot my money. 
<laughs> so I think I was always um, of my own mind, you know, like there was a way that I wasn't having it. And, uh, you know, I was, I come from a very strict Catholic family. So was church on Sunday and Catholic school. And my mom's friends used to say, your children are so well behaved. And I was like, yeah, well, we were just terrified. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> don't do anything for she has. It. And I understand that more again from having lived with her. It's like, I see talk about fire in the belly. Oh my God. I would just see her and go, Oh my God, now I know where I get it, you know, because she's super fiery, 90 years old, and she'll be giving customer service reps a hard time. Or, you know, when the guy doesn't come to fix her stove at the time that he promised, she's like, I've got things to do. And I'm like, yeah, watch Judge Judy. Like, <laughs> what do you have to do other than clean your house compulsively, mom? <laughs> but she's very, very fiery. So, um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm my mother's daughter and I'm also the daughter, uh, the sister to three boys. So that was very formative for me. I was really, really a tomboy. We lived in um, Connecticut for two years. My father was with IBM mm -hmm. and they move you around. A bit. The joke is I've been moved. IBM means I've been moved. And so we moved to the East Coast at one point and um the Stanford advocate got wind of the fact that three boys lived in our house and they came to see if one of them wanted a paper route. Guess who took the paper route? <laughs> I'm like, I'll do it. Four dollars a week. <laughs> that was a lot of money. Bargain, back in, yeah. That was a lot of money back in the early 70s for a, you know, 10, 12 year old. So where do you fall in the in the sibling order then? Are you? Uh, I'm number two. I have one okay. older brother and two younger. We're the classic, you know, there's that family thing. It's like my brother's the hero. I'm the rebel. The next one's the lost child. And my youngest brother is definitely the mascot. No question about <laughs> it. He's kind of everybody's favorite. He has this rock solid self-esteem because he had the three of us, you know, looking at him all the time. We called him. What's his nickname? We all had nicknames. His was Toot, Little Toot. Because he would, he would like, um, God, it's so funny. Where did that come from? Oh, trains, oh, toot, toot, you know, okay. for the train. And he would try to say my name, my name. I guess one time I was afraid when I heard a fire engine, something, and I would be like, and I was like scared. And so he used to, my name, Geraldine, he said, he called me Nornian. And so he would try to scare me. He'd go, Nornian, Nornian. <laughs> fire engine noises. So anyway. Being being the sister to three brothers, I think, was very informative. My friends who have all sisters have a very different relationship. I mean, it's just a completely different thing to have all mm. sisters. One of my best friends from high school has three sisters. I had three brothers. She's it's that is so formative, mm. you know, in terms of. Most of, I have more men friends than women friends. I was actually reflecting this morning that on probably 10 or 15 podcasts now, all men, I've yet to be interviewed by a woman. I thought, oh, that's interesting. I wonder what that's about. That's a, that is interesting because probably about 75% of my guests would be female. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. So maybe they're just doing, yeah, they're not hosting, like they're just doing all the guest routes. 
I wonder what that's about. Yeah. I mean, there are plenty of female hot podcast hosts. I do have some, I do have some scheduled, but so far it's been all men. I'm pretty sure. Oh no, there was one woman. So anyway. Yeah. yeah. Who do you prefer to work with out of interest, men or women? Um, I think in general, I do better with men. Hmm. Yeah. Especially men who have a backbone. Yeah. I'm, I'm, biting, I'm biting my tongue now not to say more about that. It's like, <laughs> well, imagine when you probably had to fight your corner. It's like, yeah, you, you don't want someone that's going to be a pushover. You need, you need a bit of resistance, right? You know, you know, it's funny. Um, my, my one longest term relationship, the man, he didn't have a backbone and it's kind of what brought our relationship to a halt repeatedly and you know for me relationships should keep moving always mm. but there was a way that um i began to realize that my fire was a bit too much for him i did learn to dial it back i think one of the most powerful lessons i learned in that relationship was how not to like do what my mom does and blow up you know for for me like my mom it's like i get angry and then i'm over it it's like psh, psh, it's gone. Then I'm back to normal and all's good, but it would, he would just, I'd lose him. So I got to the point where it was like, okay, there was a moment of choice. Like, okay, I can, I can blast him and lose my man for two days, or I can walk outside and scream at the trees or what, you know? So I began to really see the impact of my temper flares, which for me, they're just a flare. It's not a forest fire. It's a flare. It means something's going on here, you know? So it was interesting to, um, to be able to dial that back a bit. Mm. But then I digress. I don't even remember your question. All right. It's all right. <laughs> Neither do I. So we're all, we're, all, we're all good on that score. What was the original plan then? What were we going to do when you grew up? You know, I always wanted to be a teacher. I think in, um, in high school, I always thought I wanted to be a teacher. Then. I went to Oregon State my first two years of school and studied political science, which didn't agree with me. When I went back to school, I was still unsure what I wanted to do. And my my father said, you have the gift of gab. He said, communication is the most important thing. If you can write and speak well, you'll do fine no matter what you decide to do. So I finished my undergrad in uh, communications and it served me well i i i really do feel that the structure of logic and thought is what makes me a good ghostwriter and editor uh, i'm always so surprised when people don't know the difference between a valid argument and a sound argument it's like i know intrinsically the difference so i have a really strong bullshit detector and uh, and often with my authors i'm like okay so, so do you know the difference? No, you're going to have to break it down because I'm sitting okay, here wondering. So, so a valid argument, the, the conclusion proceeds from the premises. Okay. The, a, uh, let me see if I can give you the, there's a really good example. I always forget it. It's um, two examples. All men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. So mm -hmm. the conclusion follows from the premises. When the conclusion follows from the premises and the premises are true, 
it's a sound argument. So that's a sound argument. All men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. Now, when the premises are not true, the conclusion follows from the premises. You have a valid argument, but it's not sound. For example, all birds can fly. Penguins are birds. Therefore, mm. penguins can fly. So, and this is the problem in our world. This is where what we were talking about earlier, like no one really knows. People make an argument that's valid, whether it's about reincarnation or COVID. It's like conclusion follows from your premise. Are your premises true? And when we're dealing in unknowns, it's hard to say what, what is absolute truth. I don't know that there's any absolute truth other than everything is always changing. So that's the problem I have with when people say, well, I trust the science. I'm like, okay, you trust the science. Have you heard of researchers bias? Which science are you going to trust? There's science to prove everything that people are asserting right now is the absolute truth and on which they base their choices. But which so so it's it's a it's a challenging thing to put these considerations before someone's thought process and challenge their thought process and ask them to think more deeply. We're not good at critical thinking. Unfortunately, and I think critical thinking is something much needed in our world. There's versions of truth, isn't there? You know, versions of beliefs and versions of whatever whatever we're told we grew up with, etc. Well, that's the distinction. You just named the key distinction. Is this your belief or is this, the, is this objective truth? Hmm. And objective truth in many cases is a moving target. Hmm. You know, they still can't define energy or consciousness. Even water, they can't actually say exactly what it is. So it's uh, it's all very very interesting how but but we crave certainty you know that's how we deal with our discomfort and not knowing is we want certainty it's part of how the mind works how do you feel about that sort of openness that sort of you know life's a big dough ball that's <laughs> all <laughs> a big dough ball I love that <laughs> you know I'm. I'm atypical in that sense because of uh, I've lived a very unconventional life and I don't have a lot of the securities a lot of people have. Um, I'm not I'm not attached to a home or a relationship. I'm pretty much um, I mean, I'm one of the original digital nomads before they called it that. I um, have never owned a home. I have no interest in owning a home. I've never been married. I've never had children. And um, part of that is just that I'm a wild and crazy beast who refuses to be poured into a glass. But but I have had a successful career. I've been writing books for 20 years. And if anything grounds me, it's this computer. It's like I know where my computer is. And ever since I first had a laptop, it was like, wow, this is freeing. I can work from wherever I am. I can just pick up this little puppy. I mean, now I have a big I have the big Mac and the the Mac Air. But um I um I did want to address your question. Oh, so um one of the things that I think liberated me from the conventional view of the world was was a near death experience that put me in very direct contact with what is what I'll call the unseen realms. Like there is something behind that there's this wizard of oz back there. There's something that we're not aware of 
from where we're looking that our senses can't actually perceive that is a vast intelligence kind of holding all of it, even in the midst of the chaos and craziness of 2020 and 2021, there is some vast intelligence behind it all. And it doesn't mean the individual life is going to be spared or easy or anything, but the more attached we are to how we think it's supposed to be, the less aliveness we're, we're able to tap into. There is, um, there is a story I like to read from the book that really addresses this issue of how are we conditioned to be unhappy? And I think my true north is always, and, and it did come largely out of not so much my reading Jean's work as my writing her biography and really drilling down deep into what is it that was so different about these people, these indigenous people living in the jungle in the 50s and 60s and over, you know, I won't say eons, but, you know, these people never left paradise, basically. They lived in a state of blessed good cheer. They dealt with life difficulties with a spirited attitude of celebration. Now, and one of the, in one of the editions, her book was published. Um, she had 20 different publishers, 21 languages, something like 17 printings and three editions to the book. And um, one of them, the subtitle was In Search of Happiness Lost. So like, how did we, which, which has rings of, you know, paradise lost. So how did we leave paradise? Um, she preferred the title allowing human nature to work successfully, which is more accurate and less romantic, but um, let me read you. So I, I lost my train of thought and I don't know what the question was, but it was something to the effect of why did I go off on that? Oh, uh, oh, who, who cares? <laughs> we'll just move forward instead of going back. So one continuous flow, right? Right, right. Um, let's see. Oh, you know what? I like to look in the PDF. It's easier to find things in the PDF version of this book than in the actual book. Uh, let me see. Open, recent. Here we go. It's 7 a.m. here, which is why I'm not as organized as I like to be. Um, can I read you this little? Please do. Okay. So this speaks to this idea. One of the memes I'm kind of sending out there in the world from this book is that joy is our natural state. And um, this really speaks to that. And I like to share the story because stories are such a powerful teacher. And as soon as you hear a story like this, it's almost like you can't fool yourself anymore that what you think is real in your mind is the absolute unchangeable truth. So you get to see reality from a slightly different perspective. And that's why I like to share this story. So this is on her first expedition in 1951. And she's with, they're going upriver. It's about three weeks upriver to get to where they were headed, which is the Sanama village. And they're with the Tarapin uh, 
guides. So Enrico Middleton is an Italian count, blonde haired, blue eyed Italian count. And Beth Orlando is his financier on the expedition. And Jean managed to convince him to take her along. Enrico, he she she wasn't romantically involved with him. She simply uh, really, really wanted to go to the jungle and managed to convince him to take. She's a very persuasive individual. So, uh, OK, so here we go. One day without warning, the river halved in volume. They were sur surrounded by a dense growth of asparagus, ficus and philodendron. Enrico recognized this passage. He had traversed it before. And he began to describe the challenge that lay ahead in detail. We'll have to climb over the steep granite wall next to Arapuchi Falls, he said. How steep? Jean asked. Quite, Enrico replied, avoiding her eyes. This is the passage you told me about, Beppe frowned nervously. Yes, Enrico replied. Then with a single slow nod of his head, this is the one. Still avoiding Jean's gaze, he went on. They placed logs across the path of the canoe and haul it inch by inch. The sun is merciless. You could easily get heat stroke. He described the pain he'd experienced time and again when the canoe would slip into a crevice between boulders and pivot out of control, scraping his shins and ankles against the granite. Jean's face remained stoic. Beppe looked horrified. Fearing what lay ahead, the three of them spent several days bracing themselves for the hard work and pain that was sure to follow. They arrived at the waterfall full of dread and primed to suffer, already hating every moment of the portage. They started off grim-faced, dragging the canoe up a rocky slope. When the canoe swung sideways, the sheer weight of it would pin a member of the work party to a burning rock while the others scrambled to move it off. A quarter of the way up, all ankles were bleeding. By way of begging off for a bit, Jean jumped ahead to photograph the scene. She climbed up 10 yards and perched high on a rock. From that vantage point, a distance from the action, she noticed a curious fact. There before her was a group of men engaged in a single shared task. Two of them were tense, frowning, losing their tempers at everything and everyone, cursing in the distinctive way of Tuscan men. The Tarrapin guides, on the other hand, were having a fine time of it. They were laughing at the unwieldy canoe and making a game of the battle with gravity and rock. Between pushes, they sho showed off their scrapes and bruises. When once again, the canoe would wobble forward, pin one, then another of them underneath it. They responded with amusement rather than upset. The fellow who was held barebacked against the scorching granite invariably laughed the loudest once he could breathe again. All the men were doing the same work. All were experiencing strain and pain. All were sweating in the blazing hot sun. There was no difference in their situations except one. Jean and the Italians had been conditioned by their culture to believe that such a combination of circumstances was at the very bottom of the scale of well-being. What's more, they were quite unaware they had a choice, any other option, as to how they could experience that situation. The guides were equally unaware of their choice. These supposedly primitive people had also been conditioned to deal with their circumstances in a particular way. They knew what lay ahead, but hadn't spent the days before the trek wallowing in dread. Quite the contrary, they approached the portage in a perfectly merry mood. They seemed to revel in the camaraderie, 
Each forward mood, move of the canoe was viewed as a victory, a cause for celebration. That's beautiful. Just, um, it's so picturesque as words, you know, so you can really sort of transporting. Yeah, yeah. And it, it really, I mean, what a stark contrast. Hmm. You know, we would just experience that as a horrible, awful thing. I mean, the way this translates in my life, I, I'm kind of a gym rat. I love to go to the gym and push heavy objects around. And a lot of people just dread it. For me, it's like, I'm going into my playground. I don't go in there with a list of exercises I'm supposed to do. And I don't like count 10 and then breathe for a minute. And then I just go in there like it's play. Mm. To, to me, it's like a, it's like my sandbox. I never know what I'm going to do till I get there. I know how to use the equipment. And the so I just go in and play. Now, I'm not so good at bringing that attitude to doing graphics in Canva, <laughs> but I'm working on it. <laughs> hey, listen, we, we've all got to have our skill set, right? You know, <laughs> it, um, do you know, what? it just, it really strikes across there, you know, as you say that it's, it is that, um, it's that flipping of that switch, you know, it's saying, you know, whereas uh, I want to, or I get to. You know, I get to yes, go to the gym. Yes. Fantastic, right? Or I want to go to the gym. It's like, well, yeah, once once also an instruction that leaves yes. you wanting. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's quite something to to have that. I mean, what I was getting there is a lot of perception. You know, it is. It's it's the same, it's the same event, right? It's the same opportunity, it's the same waterfall per se. But yet for one, it's a, it's a challenge, it's fun, it's the other, you know, and the other it's this massive hurdle and nuisance. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just a whole different frame of reference. It's like their their uh, perceptual systems are attuned to uh, how to say it, um, the celebration of it and the camaraderie. Like the, their focus is on we're in this together rather than it's us against these rocks. You know, like why do I have to do this? This whole attitude. And certainly there, when I, when it comes to like, I have to deal with some Excel sheets in my world and I cannot bring that attitude. But like you said about the people producing your show, hmm. I have somebody, I call her, I'm like, can we get on and do this Excel sheet? And I just say the numbers. I just tell her what to, because those little boxes, like my brain does not work that way. I like words. I don't like numbers. I don't like boxes. Give me a blank canvas any day of the week. But I think that's also the beauty of being in a community and having the kind of support that is available for things. Like you got to give it to the people that enjoy it. Something I hate to do. Somebody else, Lori loves it. My, my Excel girl. She's like, yeah, let me have at it. You know, it's very satisfying for her. I think she's crazy, but when she needs something written, I'm the one I'm her go-to. So it's, it's like sharing sharing the weight of everything and certainly in a tribal culture that's built into it which is the tragedy of reading the continuum concept and trying to apply it in, in modern life i mean you know this far better than i i was never a parent i might i deeply honor anyone who's raising children in today's world especially with the complexities that COVID has wrought on our society so did you did you seek that nonconformity, or is that just the way it happened? Um, I think it's just the way it happened. I mean, I I was always a bit rebellious. Hmm. Um, Do you know why? I why? Hmm. 
I think it was probably if, if I had to make up a reason, I'm not sure there's a reason. I'm not sure that it isn't kind of my, it, I mean, I don't put a lot of credence in destiny, but it does explain some things. Um, I'll tell you a story about a, a Vedanta scholar I, who showed me that very clearly. But, but first, let me just say that the, I think some part, some part of me, I was pushing against my parents who were quite strict. My mother, especially, I think I had to break out of what felt to me like too constricted a reality from early on. Cause I was always very rebellious. I just had a rebellious streak and who knows if I'd had a permissive hippie chick mom, you know, if I'd been, if I'd been raised by a mom who went to Woodstock, it would have been very different, but I was like, I was a little too early for that. You know, Woodstock didn't happen until I was 11 or 12. So, um, you know, my mom was more the early fifties housewife, you know, wearing a dress around every day and putting her hair in curlers before she, you know, my husband, anyway, it's very, it was a very, very different world. And probably I just felt too constrained by it. That's my, that's my guess. Yeah. No, it's always, it's, it's fascinating to think about different ways, isn't it? Well, where, where do we find you in flow? Where's your, where's your sort of moment place of greatest creativity then? You know, I love that because it is what I, I do a program called the author's chrysalis for people who want to write their book. Hmm. And what I really basically teach them is how to get into creative flow and how to tap into that and consistently find yourself in flow. And, and that's when, I mean, I have whole chapters that write themselves. It's like, I'll sit down. There's this one piece, the most like best example of it is the opening chapter to a novel I'm writing. I've been writing it for years. It, I started it after my near-death experience when I needed to kind of translate this massive experience into something I could get my hands on. But the waking up in the morning and just sitting down and it floods, it just comes through. There's nothing so satisfying to me. And it doesn't happen every day. And sometimes it's a matter of being patient. But the unconscious is always working on whatever it is that we want to create. And when you show up consistently, it has a place to, it has a place to flow through. So even though I am this like Delta, you know, like I'm spreading across the Delta all the time, going in all directions, I know the value of riverbanks. So it's like building in structure, even though I'm in move, I'm in motion a lot. I move about a lot. I, there are these certain riverbanks and that's like the disciplines. That's what I went in meditating in the morning, setting things up. So I don't remember. I, so I don't forget. I don't remember, <laughs> you know, it's like, there's something about creating structure that makes it possible for the flow to come. And that's really what I encourage people to do and creating a context for them where they can do that with accountability is, you know, and then the consistency, 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 consistency. That's what allows the flow and the creativity to come. So one of my favorite books that I always, whenever I'm starting to work with somebody is uh, The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Fabulous book, a quick little short read, but it really, really talks about creative flow, getting through your blocks. Mm. That's like one of my Bibles. Oh, wow. And, and for you, does creativity always come from the the, sort of the, the subconscious side, the, you know, the, your deeper consciousness? 
Well, it's it's a it's the marriage between it. It's the it's the intersection between the conscious and the unconscious mind. Like my conscious mind needs to know where I am in a story, you know, and what the next scene is. The way I started Jungle Gene, I started literally with a piece of paper with all the scenes I knew needed to be included. Hmm. That was the starting point. One piece of paper and a list. I still have it in this computer somewhere. And then from there, it's like, so the conscious part is like me following the, I have a really strong relationship with my Dantian, you know, like I can, I get nudged and I just go, I, I find, I kind of feel my way through my reality, you know, follow your gut is very literal for me, but there's a way that, um, having that piece of paper with those things written down on it, that's a starting point. You know, so uh, uh, this is a funny one. I had so a couple of years ago, my iPhone was old enough that it had a little snafu, a big snafu in that I could ask for, you know, I'd ask the navigator to take me somewhere and it could it could show me where I was going, but it couldn't find where I was at the moment. So I'm in Portland where I'm not familiar with the territory. I can get anywhere in San Francisco or Southern California, Santa Barbara, the places I am right Marin County drive there, you know, blindfolded. But in Portland, Portland's weird the way it's laid out. It makes no sense. So it'd be like, okay, you need to, but it didn't know where I was. So that's problematic, you know? And it really showed me that if you don't know where you are, you can't figure out it. You can see where you're going, but if you don't know where you are, you can't get there. So there is something about that that I think is very, very powerful. Has, has everyone got a book in them, do you think? No. I think everybody has a beautiful story in them. Some mm -hmm. people's stories are beautiful and boring. Um, but there's, I, I think, I'll just say no to that question. I don't think everybody has a book in them. I think a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of people think they do. And they like the idea of writing a book. Apparently being an author is right up there with being a neurosurgeon as the most admired uh I don't know what to call it, vocation, uh, career. It's people are like really well. However, with the advent of Amazon and create space and self-publishing, anybody can call themselves an author if they have $300 in an afternoon to throw something up on Amazon. Kindle KDP doesn't even cost you $300. You can write something, put it in a PDF, slap together a cover, load it on KDP and put a price tag on it and you'll be on Amazon the next day. And you can say, I'm an author. Now, is that something anybody wants to read? Is that something you're going to be proud of five years ago, five years from now when you're, you know, your kids read it? Probably not. This book took me 10 years and I'm a professional writer, but I wanted to, it, it's a masterpiece. I have to say, if I do say so myself, it is a masterpiece. Everybody that's read it has just been like, Oh my God. That was amazing. Um, so, no, I don't think everybody has a book in them. But yeah. I think that the people, so when I talk to people, not so much anymore, but I used to, I'd get calls from people who were like, I hear you can help me write a book. I would spend my first introductory session with them trying to talk them out of it. Like, you know, okay, here's a reality check. You're not going to get famous. You're not going to be on Oprah. Your chances are one in a million of that happening. And then when we finished the conversation, if they still wanted to write a book, I'm like, okay, good. You're probably an author. If I haven't talked you out of it, then you have the passion and the conviction required because it's not going to be easy. 
it's a it can be made easier it can be made exhilarating for me it's an exhilarating experience when i've got an idea and it's brewing in my head oh I'll, can i read you an example oh my god please do this was so fun this was one of the most fun quick flows that ever uh so there there were any number of places in the book at the end uh, during the final edit that had to be cleaned up. So there were references to things that really in today's age and nay, a blah, let me see if I can get my mouth to work. Um, there were any number of references that needed to be, well, they call it a sensitivity read, you know, with the Black Lives Matter movement and the gender stuff. It's like, you gotta be careful what you say sometimes. Um, and there were a couple references. Jean wrote this book in the 70s. And um, there were some references that just needed to be, let's say, sanded down so as not to be so rough and splintery. One of them had to do with a, a scene where she's on the, the Pettus Bridge in um, when the Martin Luther King marches and all that. So you have to be careful these days how you phrase things. And and it's true, too, of indigenous people and all of that. So there is this um, stereotype about the caveman dragging the woman along, you know, behind him, you know, that old stereotype. So in one of her journals, she had written something about that. And I just didn't want to change it. It was like that was one I just I couldn't change it. I'm like, no, that's funny. No, other people will think it's stereotypical. You know, you can't say that. And I'm like. I just puzzled over it the longest time. There were a couple things like that that I just put my foot down and I said, I don't care if they come after me. The woke wolves can go from my throat. I don't care. This is going in the book. And this was one instance. So I, what I'm going to read you is the footnote, but I'm going to read you the paragraph that it's in for context. And the, the point is this came through in a flow state and it was one of those things like I had to get to the computer because it was coming. And if I didn't write it down, it would have I would have lost it. So uh, so here's the here's the paragraph that it's in. On earlier trips, Jean had found the sexual customs among the Aquana quite strange at times offensive. But on this trip, she no longer felt shocked when a hunter would come home and grab his wife Yes, by the hair, she would joke, mocking the stereotype. Footnote 33. The cartoon version of a caveman grabbing a woman by her hair and dragging her along the ground behind him is just that, a cartoon, not to be confused with the highly erotic primal experience of having a strong set of fingers go up the back of one's neck, spread out and gently massage one's head before those fingers slowly tighten into a half fist, then firmly pull one's hair and take subtle consensual control in the manner of the greatest lovers of all time. <laughs> that's that's like a that's like a two fingers up to political correctness, right? <laughs> I mean, it was like so beautiful for me. The experience was I'd been puzzling over this and puzzling over it, and then I got a little. I got like the scent. I'm like, oh, that's the solution. 
okay. And it's coming, it's forming in my mind and it's like crashing in on me, like this cascade coming over my head. I literally had to get to the computer to catch it before it, because, and that's another thing I teach my writers is like never, ever, ever not have a capture device, either a notebook, your phone, don't think if you're falling asleep and you get a great idea or the phrasing for something comes through or the name, or even if you're writing, if you're doing email marketing and you suddenly get a perfect subject line, don't think you're going to remember it in the morning because you're not. When I've lost too many good ideas by not rolling over, opening my phone, hitting the record button, because you think, oh, that's too good. I'll, I'll never forget that. You will particularly if you're falling asleep because you're in that hypnagogic state between your conscious and your unconscious and you got you got to capture it that's really really important i'm getting a sense of a bit of a theme here it's like that's a point and we're not letting it go we'll we'll explain it out you know so that nobody can misinterpret but it's a bit like it's a bit like your man that's kind of going stand by your principles stand by your thing and it's like Talk it out if you have to, but for God's sake, don't just give in. Is that yeah. A, I know it's a bit of a big wrapper. I've just thrown around it all, but. Oh, you mean, you mean going back to the issue of backbone? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's that, but it's that sort of saying what you think, right? Cause you, we go back to primals. Like if, if you want to club it over the head, club it over the head. Don't, don't sort of dance around the hat. You know, does that make sense? Well, that's, I mean, it, it, mapping it onto the early conversation. Yes. For me, it's like so much easier to just call it, mm. you know, and then like, if I have to tiptoe around and be politically correct, every time I see something off, it slows things down. You know, this whole thing about everything has to be done by consensus. And there are certain communities that are, that are formed around those principles that nothing ever gets done because everybody's being so careful to, but there is a, I mean, there's like a fine line. There are times when I'm on fire and I'm writing an email and I'm like, if I hit the send button, this is going to cause more trouble. This is going to, so this is for me, like this version of this email is for me, put it in the drafts file, look at it again tomorrow morning. And there are times when it's, it's really a judgment call and everybody makes mistakes. You know, it's, it's like easy to flub it up. Uh, one of my teachers says, um, it's as important how you do the repair, you know, the, when, when there's a rupture in a relationship, it's important to know how to repair. Same thing when you de get dysregulated, that's a neurological thing. If you get dysregulated, you know, how, you have to know how to regulate yourself and your partner. I mean, that's a key skill. So all of these things, I mean, being human is messy. Let's face it. It's a mess. For me, though, to have a and now Bob, my partner of many, he has now passed, but he. Um, so the backbone thing with him, I think that all men, particularly and this comes back to the fire in the belly and the Sam Keen and the whole men's movement. There are a few things that develop backbone for men. And Bob didn't have any of them. So those things as far as i can tell are having a an abusive father will really give a kid a backbone because there's a moment in every young not every young boy's life but the young men who are abused by their father there often comes a point in time when the son gets his strength and he is going to flatten him 
And that puts an end to it. The first time the son stands up and says no, and either he's taller than his dad or whatever, but the first time it's like, that develops backbone. Military service develops backbone. Um, athletics will develop black backbone. It's not like natural. It's a characterological thing. It's built. It's that whole thing of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. You know, you pound the steel is what makes it so solid. So if a man didn't have some of that stuff, it he doesn't necessarily develop it. And Bob was absolutely brilliant. But he, all the sports he did were not competitive sports. He was a windsurfer and a surfer. And it was all about being in the flow for him. It was never about the fight. And he didn't go to, into military service. Mm. He actually made a choice when the draft, when his number came up to, he, he told them he was gay because that was a way to get out of military service. So he didn't have any of those formative experiences. For me, it was martial arts. Mm. Martial arts will give you a backbone. Not that I needed any. I probably had enough from my childhood, you know, but anyway, mm. that's a that's a long segue there. But no, it's it's it is fascinating. And are you are you typically are you pain or pleasure driven? What what way do you what, what motivates you? I'm very much pleasure driven and I avoid pain at all. <laughs> Every opportunity. I want to write a book called The Pleasure Body. I don't know if you're familiar with Eckhart Tolle, but he talked a lot about mm. the pain body. And I was like, okay, well, what about the pleasure body? Don't we also have a pleasure body? I mean, I really, one of the, I have a whole series of books called the naughty girl guides. And the first one is called the naughty girl's guide to sane eating and food freedom. Get down to your happy weight and stay there. And it's really, you know, I have struggled with weight like many, 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 many women throughout my life. And when I put myself on a rigid diet, it guaranteed it's not going to work. So I build pleasure into my life, like particularly with food, but also like my nightly ritual is like give myself a foot massage. It's like I need that pleasure. I think we do need pleasure. It calms the nervous system. It's just a matter of not getting out of balance with it. But that's the, I mean, that's the challenge with everything is maintaining balance, right? Mm. Or else, yeah, I mean, finding balance or finding, I suppose finding your, your it, it's the greatest version of yourself where it becomes non-negotiable. You know, because no, we're all sort of saying, that. you know, it's, it's, you know, how many of us saying, well, I don't want to be this and don't want to be that. It's like, yeah, you told me 50 things you don't want to be, but what do you want to be, right? What do you want to be? That's beautiful. Yeah. You know, it's, um, well, so I have a thing, I call them my pleasure disciplines. Mm -hmm. Like that is, and it's what you just said. It's like when it becomes non-negotiable, mm. like at night, one of my big issues was always nighttime eating. I brush my teeth after dinner. It's like, once my teeth are brushed, that's that. <laughs> And it's, I went to this, I went to a friend's house once and they were finishing dinner and they're like having dessert and, and she goes, do you want some dessert? And I said, no, I already brushed my teeth. And she looks at me like, what does that have to do with it? <laughs> but for me, it's like, that's the hard stop. It serves me very well to know where the hard stop is. I think people negotiate with themselves way too much because that negotiating is where things get waffly. And, you you know, they say the more choices you have, the harder it is to make a decision. Yeah. I think that's what you're speaking to. It's mm. like, where is it non-negotiable? And what what's the no matter what? Yeah. 
Like, what is the thing you're going to, when my father was dying uh, in 1980, he died in 86 and I was in the martial arts at that time. And he was always like, I'm just concerned about you because you start things and you never finish them. And I promised him on his deathbed, I said, daddy, I'm going to get my black belt no matter what. And it was like, I had this firm, this is, this is a, this is going to happen. Period. Full stop. Now I broke my neck shortly thereafter and was in a halo traction device for five months. But I did get my black belt. I went back after the neurologist said, you'll never train again. And I was like, you don't know who you're talking to, do you? So there are those things that we bring this fierceness to. And it, certainly raising children is one of them. You know, like what a commitment, what a conviction that is that you're going to take care of these kids no matter what. That's where the fierceness comes out. You know, they talk about the mama bear and papa bear. Like these are my little ones and the instinct to protect them is so strong. Not that I've ever felt it, but I'm sure as a dad, you know what I'm talking about. Yes. Tell me, I mean, do you, do you feel like, have you, have you maxed out your capabilities or where are you sitting in terms of what you can do, what you will do, what you should do? That's a provocative question. I would say no. I, sometimes I feel like I'm just coming into my prime. You know, there's something about publishing this book after writing so many books for other people with their names on them. Um, also, I got my license to practice psychotherapy back in the 90s. So mm -hmm. 20 years ago, I was licensed. And I didn't feel like I could do it. I didn't want to sit there and I didn't feel like I had enough to offer. Now in my 60s, I have a lot to offer. So I don't really, I think I'm just coming into it. I don't think I'll ever retire. Someone said that to me the other day. They're like, you're never going to retire. And I'm like, yeah, I don't even think of retirement. A lot of people my age have already retired or that's what they're focused on. And I never worked for a corporation. I think in the last 20 years, I was on a payroll, you know, maybe for two years the whole time. So I've always worked for myself. I don't really think about retiring. I do think about being less busy, mm. you know, having less, particularly with publishing the book. Uh, you know, I did a crowdfunding campaign. I published, I wrote it. It was final edits. It was just over a year ago that I made a commitment to make it happen. Wow. I read it. I read it over 4th of July, 4th of July weekend in 2020. It had been on the back burner for two solid years. And I read it and I was like, oh my God, this is, I hadn't looked at it in a while. So when I looked at it and read it, I was, oh, this has to, this has to get done. So um, I gave up on traditional publishing and just went ahead and did it myself. So I had to learn how to publish a book. I ran an Indiegogo campaign, did all the, all the production, all of the, everything, created the marketing and the email list and all that kind of stuff. It was, I would wake up like overwhelmed with a to-do list that I couldn't get a handle on, but it's getting easier now. It's, I've got kind of the flow on the business end of things. So... Do you, do you need to be structured like that? Do you need, you work well to timescales and timelines or? Um, I always say deadlines make it happen in my world. And accountability is really, I mean, I have clients that I meet with once a week. I'm only really doing one book project at the moment and um, a couple other little things. But if I'm working on a book with a client, I require a once a week 
and it's as much for them as for me, you know, like if there's a meeting that I need to show up for prepared, I'll show up prepared. Hmm. I'm not about to come without doing what I said I was going to do. So, so yeah, I, that kind of structure, I don't do well with to-do lists. I can't keep up with them. It's like, ah, it's like another thing to do to manage the to-do list. So I unfortunately fly by the seat of my pants a lot. And it's like, okay, what has to get done today? The, the one thing I do do is like, okay, what is my top priority today? Like, what are my top three priorities? If I get one thing, if I get the top thing that has like today, it was, it's you. And there's another podcast I'm on at four o'clock. Those are the absolute must do's non-negotiable. Um, and then, but every single day, a bunch of stuff shows up that I hadn't expected. I'm sure you know what that's like. It's like, okay, well, well, that just took me an hour and a half and I hadn't even put it on the list. So I put things on the list after the fact, just so I can have the satisfaction of crossing them off. I learned that from my 90 year old mother. I'm like, wait, mom, that wasn't on your list this morning. She said, yeah, but I did it. So she puts it on the list. Taking credit. <laughs> I'm like, that's a good one. I like that. <laughs> that's a right, right near to-do list at nine o'clock at night. As the day's over, it's like, yeah, yes, yeah, it's yeah. always going to be a fun one. Yeah, no, it's great, great principles to have. Like, that. there's a, I mean, what, how would you describe your your writings and and your, you know, really, I suppose, I mean, what, how many books have you dealt with? Do you know? Do you have any concept? Um, I think I've written from scratch eight books, mm -hmm. and I've edited. Everything from like final edits to complete developmental edits, probably another 15 or 20. God, I'm in awe. I, I can barely read my own book. <laughs> <So> <laughs> it's an absolute skill to have that focus of concentration, I think. It is. Uh, I do it in bite sized pieces. Mm. It's rare. I mean, sometimes I'll sit for hours at a time and work on something, but it's more like I give myself a two hour window mm. and I make sure I stand up after 50 minutes and stretch or go get a drink or something like it's not good actually to sit to sit for more than 50 minutes at a time. But um, I'm good at bite sized pieces. So I think it's just what I do professionally. You know, it's for me, it's my profession. It's, sure. it's my job. It, I do it because I get paid to do it. You know, it's mm. not necessarily my favorite thing in the world. Um, I am, I am pivoting in my career from actually being a ghostwriter and editor to being a writing coach. The author's chrysalis is really so that I can step back, not being doing so much of the writing, but do more of the advising and inspiring and conversation and teaching people what it takes to write well and then giving them a structure. There's something about a group that really, the, the collaboration is very powerful. So between that, you know, for me, it's really about, okay, I've done that for 20 years. I'm good at it. Now, how can I help other people get good at it rather than doing it for them? You know, it's that old, I'd rather teach you how to fish than hand you a trout kind of thing. Yeah, so. that makes sense. It does make sense. Well, I suppose when you work in those group group scenarios, you get everyone can can go at their own speed. But as you say, you get the combined collective intuition, energy, power, whatever you know, whatever comes together, it makes sense. Yeah, I love that. Um, I think it's uh, what's her name, Angel Angel Arian or something talks about the flying geese. 
and how they fly in formation. V formation, yeah, and they take turns. Yeah, they and and so there's this updraft mm. with all of them, and then the leader changes. You know, one of them's leading and then gives it over to another one. And I mean, there is something very beautiful about that collective, that camaraderie, mm. and mm. working together. So, in a non-competitive way. Yeah. Yeah. Competition is good in some way. There's not to say competition isn't a good thing, but there are there cutthroat competition, not yeah. such a good thing. Mm-hmm. Tell me what I mean, you mentioned there. It's you know, some what is it you love to do? Well, I used to absolutely love to play frisbee, <laughs> especially if there's music. And I I've been an ecstatic dancer. I me and my my group, my cohort, we pioneered ecstatic dance when I was in my twenties and thirties. We had, we didn't call it ecstatic dance. Now it's called ecstatic dance. Back then it was just called barefoot dancing or freestyle dancing. Okay. And um, I was going to say, I don't even know what ecstatic dancing oh is. Oh my God. Oh my God. It was, I discovered it, you know, I was at the time going to discos and, okay. you know, wearing high heels and dancing, you know, and having a cocktail in between. And then one day I was in Berkeley and I walked into this event called dance jam and it's just a DJ and a wide open dance floor and people just moving with the music. And there's no, that the, the, there's none of that self-consciousness that happens on the dance floor. Cause people are literally just letting themselves be completely free. And at this point, it's this massive movement. It's all over the world. And, um, it's known as ecstatic dance back then it was barefoot dancing and there was two of them, two or three of them in the Bay area. There was one in Berkeley dance jam. There was a barefoot boogie in San Francisco. That was blast. And then we had dance spirit in Marin County. So you could, you could dance three nights a week. Now you can dance three times a day. There are so many ecstatic dances and, and, and there, it's not a class. I mean, there are classes, there's five rhythms and those different things, but the, um, in general, it's just an open floor. People show up in their sweat clothes or their yoga outfits or whatever, and just go wild. It's, it's absolutely the most fun I have ever had. And now that I have destroyed my knees I don't go nearly as often, but you know, music and dance is my last night when I was making dinner, I turned on the music and I just like, I'm dancing around while I chop the vegetables. And so really music and dance is my greatest joy in life. That's your thing. Just feeling the vibe and just going along with it. Yeah. Just letting go, just letting go of the mind and feeling my way into the body and letting the body do what it wants. I mean, there is a dance tonight that I might go to. They're doing outdoor dances now. It, uh, you know, COVID really shut that whole thing down. And some people were doing, you know, on Zoom. And I tried that a couple of times. And I was like, it just doesn't have the same effect to stand in front of a Zoom window and dance. You know, like, okay, good idea. But it got boring very quickly. When I first used to do it, it was so much fun because it was like, we'd be rolling around on the ground. It's like getting back into your child's mind. We'd just be jumping around and rolling and, you know, and these were pretty athletic people that had a lot of skill in their bodies. My martial arts training served me well because I I have this, like people often ask me if I have dance training and I'm like, no, I have martial arts training, but it, it, it can just be so much fun to have Mm -hmm. that. And then there's contact improv, which is a whole nother thing. I I didn't get too much into contact improv just because of of my neck situation. I did, I did have cervical spine fusion and 
that's a little too rowdy for me. That's like crossing the line into dangerous. So, um, I just preferred the other, the other, and I've been to Burning Man a couple of times. So all of this is very Northern California culture. It's a big part of the culture here. That's awesome. I mean, you, you sort of feeling into yourself, I suppose, and letting yourself, the true self come out as such. Yeah, it's more like getting in touch with the instinctive self and the playful side. Mm. You know, that I think that's the beauty of it. It's so very playful. And the relationships you form there are just beautiful. I have a housemate. I live in this big 6,000 square foot house. This is actually, this is not a virtual background. This is actually <laughs> the front window. I mean, the house is ginormous. And there's seven or anywhere between seven and 10 people that live here. And uh, one of my housemates has just kind of stumbled into this dance community in the last year. And it's why he moved to Marin from San Francisco, because it's like an immediate tribal scene. It's just everybody getting together several times a week and smiling and dancing and moving. And there's a lot of flirtation going on. I, you know, it's really, it's really quite yummy. So. There's a, there's a bit of a sensual sight to you. Is there, is that, is that a fair thing? To me? Yeah. You think? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've always had a very, yes, very much. So mm -hmm. I, I was um, the first book I published as a, I, it, it was an anthology. I did a series of anthologies back in the early 2000s, which is how I got into the publishing world. At that point, I was a yoga teacher and a massage therapist. But I did a book called The Marriage of Sex and Spirit. That was really my desire to, it's the intersection of sexuality and spirituality. And I've done a lot of books in that arena. The um, Taoist priest I referenced earlier, uh, Bruce Francis, I was his editor on a book called Taoist Sex Meditation. So it was a big part of my identity for many years. I have never talked about this on a podcast, but I'll share it with you since, as you said, we go deep. My, um, wow, I'm not sure I want to talk about this now that I've brought it up. That's okay. Let's just say I had a health crisis that changed that entirely for me. So between menopause and this particular health problem, I, my sexuality became not the dominant force in my psyche. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's, I miss my precious estrogen. I miss it like crazy, but I do not miss that monkey on my back. Mm. You know, it's not the driving. It's just not the way it used to be. I used to be a horny wench. I'm not kidding. Like it, it really was the driving force in my world and it's not anymore. And that's a relief. I think mm. I still, I think I'm still very much in touch of my sensual side, but my sexuality isn't front and center like it used to be when i was in my 50s people would say like God, you're the sexiest 50 year old i've ever met and i was very proud of that they don't say that about me in my 60s <laughs> maybe you know maybe but i would have to cultivate it actively i have friends who are on the wiley protocol and take all these hormones to make sure that everything is still cooking along the way it did when we were in our 30s and 40s uh, frankly i'm not interested I'm fine with that. That part of my life has given way to something else. And I actually think that there is something very beautiful about re 
conceiving and I don't like the phrase recreate, but somehow being born into a different phase of life mm. where you where sensuality and sexuality actually morphs and changes as your body morphs and changes. I haven't been in a relationship in, in many years now, but I have a sense it's coming. I, I can kind of feel it on the horizon. And I know I'm going to have to like, it's going to be like starting all over. Like, what is it like now? You know, how, how, what turns me on now? Because I don't have that driving force of the um, estrogen and testosterone. I mean, even women have testosterone. Mm. And my testosterone levels are pretty low, which doesn't mean I don't still enjoy sensual pleasure. It's just not driven by testosterone so much as it is, you know, just a really like, delighting in the pleasure of physical touch so anyway is there a connection to that and, and to writing you know it, it, it's a form of creativity it's a form of expression too right you know and it's unique and, and beautiful in its own way it's interpretive well it's all life force mm. so you know in yoga they talk about shakti it's all the shakti it's the movement of uh, the feminine energy the 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 feminine divine, if you want, it's like, that's the, that's the creative pulse The whereas the masculine is this like center core, this like core, absolute, never changing, you know? And so that's the whole yin and yang. It's like, we all have to have some of both. I meditate in the morning because I need that anchoring into mm -hmm. the core of the unchangeable, the untouchable aspect of the self because everything else is swirling around me so fast that I need that centrifugal centrifugal force. I think of it like it's the difference for me from being a top and being a gyroscope. So mm. like you pump up a top and you let it go and it's spinning, 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 and it hits a wall and then it's dead. Whereas if it's a gyroscope, it hits the wall and it writes itself again. Mm. Because it knows where its center of gravity is. It, it knows how to find that true north. So, yeah. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Possibly a slightly weird question. Do you like yourself? Do you love yourself? 95% of the time. <laughs> I oh, mean, I have my moments. I have my moments where I'm like, just over it and done, you know, but I know that voice. I know that that's a, a part, you know, I do parts work. So mm. it's like, we all have, I always like the metaphor of the perfect diamond, you know, a perfect diamond has 57 facets. And I think the average human being has at least that many <laughs> and, and different facets come forward, whoever you're interacting with or what circumstance you're in. A, a different mm. facets will come forward. So sometimes my self-hating facet comes forward, not nearly as often as it used to. You know, I've done a lot of personal healing, a lot of depth psychology, a lot of, you know, finding my own blind, blind spots, which I think is the most important thing for people who are suffering in their relationships. Mm. But there's, I don't think I'll ever be fully baked, you know, but the bread has risen. It's, you know, it's not gooey and mushy anymore. I'm pretty strong. I'm, I'm pretty strong in myself and I like who I've become. And, and this book, I mean, I'm going to get choked up now, but what you were talking about earlier, 
about in your sleep. It's like, this is a legacy. When I, I leave, my name will still be here. You know, Jean's, Jean's name, people know her and still talk about her and we're deeply, she had a huge impact on people's lives and I'm having an impact on people's lives. So I'm not going to be like six foot under and nobody ever thinks about Gerilyn again. That's not why I set out to write the book, mm. but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an effect it has. And it's why I was so determined to write a really good book. Um, yeah. So God, I got choked up. That's the first time that's happened on a podcast. <laughs> you told me you like to go deep. So you do ask some provocative questions. I do have a habit of making people cry. I, I mean, I say it's not me. They cry in my presence. I, don't, <laughs> I, don't, I can't take credit. Uh, you mean, you mentioned there about the Eckhart Tolle almost doing the, the positive body. Do you think, is there something in that for you? Um. I mean, I think it's a metaphor. I think there's, so if you look at it from the Taoist um, perspective and framework, we have seven bodies, you know, there's the physical body, there's the chi body, mental, emotional, psychic, karmic Tao. So there are these other, so it's really a, it's, it's more a metaphor than a reality, but I do think that there's, we know enough about the neurology, the, the neurology of pleasure, the pleasure circuits, the reward circuits, the motivational circuits. We know enough about that to be able to say, to be able to call that the pleasure body. And then you, you weave that in with the instinct and the, I mean, even bacteria seek pleasure. You know, there's like, we, we go toward what satisfies our needs. And uh, I think the confusion comes in between what are the immediate needs and the long-term, you know, it's the short-term versus long-term satisfactions. Mm. And I think that's the hardest thing. I certainly had difficulties with impulse control, you know, still do when it's, you know, like when I haven't brushed my teeth and it's late at night and there's ice cream in the freezer. I mean, I won't say I never eat anything after I've brushed my teeth. <laughs> I'm just going to say that it's like, that's a, that's the stopping point most of the time. And to this issue of, uh, do I like myself? If I break the rules, I don't beat myself up about it. Hmm. You know, it's like, oh, okay. Rules are made to be broken on occasion, just not every day or every night, unless I want to, you know, not fit into my jeans, which is not okay with me. <laughs> Ecstatic dancing and uh, yeah, so sort of jogging pants to try and yeah fit into the jeans. I like it. Yeah, well, I have really I've destroyed my knees. I literally, it's unfortunate that the body breaks down. I have gotten permission to get a knee replacement. I'm just not ready to go under the knife, but one of these days I will. I talk to a lot of people who've had knee replacements, and they're like, "I wish I did it sooner." And then I talk to other people who are like, God, that was horrible. So it's anybody's guess. I, I kind of pray for guidance on those things. And when it gets painful enough, maybe mm. I'll do it. What sort of, what life principles do you live by? I mean, do, I mean, are you, are you someone that likes to try things at least once, you know, it's whether it's knees or God um, knows what. Well, I have jumped out of airplanes. Um, I have tried a lot of things once. I don't know that I live with that as a principle. I mm. think if I have any, you know, you know, there's this whole thing about what's your purpose in life. And I 
struggled with that for a long time, framed it and reframed it. And then when I landed on what I now consider my purpose in life, I stuck with it. And it's that my purpose is to do as much good and have as much fun as humanly possible. Actually, the reverse. It's to have as much fun and do as much good as humanly possible in that order. So uh, if there is anything that I would say is my guiding principle, it's like, let's make it fun. Let's, let's find the fun in it. And some, that is somewhat influenced by the book. You know, that story I read you, there's other ones like that, that are like, oh my God, there is a really powerful one in here about um, men and how much men are conditioned not to show feelings. So one of the things I know about, so that's one of my principles is trust your feelings. Like they're, they are telling you something. There's no such thing as a negative feeling. There are negative emotions. And I make a distinction between feelings, emotions, and moods. So feelings come and go. They're like weather patterns. Mm -hmm. It's raining one minute, the rainbows and the clouds are breaking the next. So feelings come and go. That's the nature of them. Now, when we name them and identify with them, I'm angry. Now we have an emotion because we've named it. We've mm. objectified it and it's ours rather than it having us, you know, it moving through us. We suddenly have our anger and we have reasons for it and we're justified in our anger. So and then if you hold on to emotion an emotion long enough, you get a mood. And, you know, moods can last for days. And if, if, and then you've got a mood disorder or you've got it, you know, so, so there is really something for me about trusting my feelings. I do my best not to deny or repress my feelings. Sometimes I have to negotiate with myself when and where to express them. And when they're like information for me and when they're information for others and to respect that others also have feelings and there are times to share the information and there are times for not, that's all comes with maturity. Hmm. You know, I, I did not have that kind of maturity in my thirties and forties. My emotional intensity pushed a lot of people out of my life. So fortunately my family put up with me. They do love me. I have a really good relationship with my family, which is um, not I don't think it's the norm. I think, I, well, maybe it should be the norm, but I have a really, really good relationship with my family members. My, my, my friends are often like, wow, you have a really good relationship with your family. Mm. And that's something I've cultivated because I was the difficult one. Fortunately, all my brothers had children and now there are plenty of nieces and nephews that are the difficult ones. <laughs> so I'm off the hook. <laughs> You're praying for them. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah, just... <laughs> Wait till they're doing something pretty right. Well, I do end up being the family therapist. You know, I come in and I'm the voice of reason and I'm the one that like validates everybody's feelings. And I had to talk through my mom through something last night. And then I was on the phone with this brother and that brother and this niece and this niece trying to get everybody on the same page. So, you know, it's my mom's 90th birthday was uh, the day after Christmas last year. So she's been 90. And so we're finally having the birthday party this weekend. So there's like, it's like a family reunion and there's all kinds of stuff going on about that, particularly with COVID. So there were some ruffled feathers yesterday that I did my best to smooth out and I'm still going to have to deal with some of it today. But I do get to be the voice of reason sometimes. 
is I have three very, very, very righteous, very intelligent, very successful brothers who know it all, you know, and I'm like, okay, well, let's look at this from some other perspectives and help everybody get on the same page. This really is about mom. It's not about your political, your politics or your, Mm. you know, so it's, it's a, it's an interesting thing that I'm in the middle of right now. Which is more fun that it's almost like the, the arsonist or the firefighter is it the, you know, being the chaperone or being the mischief maker <laughs> for me personally. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I think it's, a, I think it's all of it. You know, I think it's a full round. I do enjoy the respect I get when I'm the firefighter. I could feel it yesterday. I could feel my mother like went from being very upset to laughing in the course of a half hour conversation. I kind of, you know, it was almost like a role reversal, mm. you know, she used to That's have true. to work, work me through it when I was really upset and I really helped her yesterday. That was a very, very satisfying feeling. So, yeah. and that has a lot to do with the fact that I lived with her for a year because we got to know each other so much better and trust each other. And yeah, it's a, I have a very, very different relationship with my mom now. I'm very, I feel so very blessed. I'm going to have to write a COVID memoir about my relationship with my mom. Yeah, no, that's sweet. It's, as you say, to have, have the wisdom maybe to, to actually take that opportunity and to, to make it something as opposed yeah. to, yeah, I have to. It's like, no, yeah. I, I get to, right? Yes, you know? absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Tim was, I think we probably already know, but. What what's a guilty pleasure for you? <laughs> Chocolate. Um, let's see. What's a guilty pleasure for me? Well, most of my guilty pleasures are around food. Um, okay, give, give us your know. last. Give us your last meal then. What what are we getting? Starters. Oh, well, last night it wasn't that interesting. Actually, it was delicious though. I made myself mm. last night. What did I have? Um, no, your last your last supper. So the last meal you would ever have. What would you what would you oh, go for? Oh God, I would just go to um <laughs> a buffet. <laughs> it, you know, it's funny. There's a there's I would go to an ice cream store and have a sample of everything. There's this ice cream store. One of my favorites is Screamy Mimi's. It's like, can I just have a little one of the baby scoops of this, 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 and this, you know? <laughs> I, I, ice cream would be my last meal, I think. Well, starters, mains, and dessert. Yeah, skip the salad. <laughs> like none of that green stuff. <laughs> well, the, if it's pesto, yeah. I do like pesto. <laughs> Not wild about pasta. For me, pasta is like a pesto delivery vehicle. <laughs> you know, like, just give me the pesto. I'll dip a cucumber in it. <laughs> My kids feel that way about butter. It's like, yeah, the pasta just brings the butter to them. You know? right, 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 right. Oh, I love it. Yeah. No, it's great to have no. <laughs> Leisure and pleasure for you then. What does it look like? Um, you know, I, I, I go out in nature a lot. I lay out in the sun, you know, you can tell from my skin that I love to just stretch out in the sun. I go for long walks in the beach when I'm in Ventura, I go for walks in the woods when I'm here in, in Northern California. Um, I go to bed early. I do love going to bed early. I wear my glompers. Oh, somebody's was walking in. Hi. I wear my glompers a lot. I'll put on my music when I was watching cooking dinner last night. You know, I just love to have it in my totally in my head, you know, especially when I'm walking around and just enjoying that. So, um, what else? I actually enjoy cooking and I enjoy going to the farmer's market on the weekends, wandering around. It's like a social event. 
So those are some of my, some of my pleasures. Well, what's something that not many people know about you? Oh God. I'm pretty much an open book. A lot of people don't know about my martial arts background. Mm. Um, Cause that was a long time ago now. Uh, hmm. Wow, that's a good one. I don't know. I don't know if I can come up with anything. Mm. And many, many, many years from now, what what's going to get written on your headstone? Oh God, she had a good time. <laughs> <laughs> she needed new knees. <laughs> right. She wore out her knees. She got a lot of mileage out of that body. Arson is firefighter, you know, knees worn out. I oh, love it. <laughs> Tell me, if you, if you were describing your fire in the belly then in one or two words, what would they be? Uh, hot. <laughs> Just one word, hot. I do run hot. Like I sleep. So no matter what time of year it is, I have a very thin down comforter with a bamboo cover over it. And I like to get into a cold bed. I know enough about sleep. I wrote a book on sleep for a client and, and I studied the science of sleep. And my ex Bob, he used to sleep with an electric blanket. Mm -hmm. I sleep with a cold blanket, like literally it's a twin sized. It's not even a full comforter. It's a twin size comforter. And the reason I do that is because I can lift it up and flip it over and have the cold side on my body. And I'll write, I'll, I'll roll over in the bed onto the cold side of the sheets because cold actually helps your, your, it's your temperature dropping is what puts you to sleep. People don't know that. Mm. So there is something about I don't even remember the question. I've completely lost my train of thought, but yeah, something about what would be on my headstone. I'm not sure how I got to the cold bed from the headstone, but there it you was, go. Uh, I was asking about your fire in your belly. If you were to, to summarize oh, it, it's hot. Yeah. Hot. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be more. No, I run hot. hot. That's what that's right. That's the yeah. segue. People are always like, your hands are so warm. You know, I just have, I tend to run hot. Cool. Like it. So tell us where can people track you down, hunt you down, follow you, find um, you. So uh, the book is available on Amazon in all formats. You can get the Kindle, um, hardcover or softcover. My website, GeraldineJundro.com, has all the information about the different things that I do. I'm on Facebook. I'm trying to get onto Instagram. I'm actually going to see my niece who's an Instagram fiend and have her teach me a few things this weekend. Um, I am pretty easy to find. Just Google me. You'll see some of the books I've written and um, GeraldineJundro.com. You can get the, um, there's any number of free things on there. I do a self-assessment about the blind spot work. I have a three pro tips to finally finish your book. You can sign up for any and all of that. If you go to junglegene.com, mm-hmm. you get a, um, a red chapter one, uh, in a mini audiobook, And mm-hmm. the producer of that is actually, he just agreed yesterday to help me do the audiobook. So hey. hopefully it'll be on audible in six months to a year from now. It takes a while to produce those things as you know, very well, mm-hmm. but, um, yeah. So mostly I would say, read this book. It'll change your life. 
Jean's work changed mine. I've already got people going, oh my God, I can't look at the world the same having read this. So it's really, um, it's really a game changer in terms of understanding what we are and what we can be. It's, wow. you know, we're so far from the continuum and so far for, away from optimal human being. Um, that's a lot of what her work was about is what does it take to optimize human nature? Wow. So powerful, isn't it? What do you get to be and what you can be? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. powerful to so tell us what's the final message you'd like to leave with the listeners. Have fun, mm. make it joyful. You know, joy is your natural state. And if you slow down long enough, whether it's a meditation practice, um, I love the wheel of awareness. Dan Siegel's work is very helpful for those of us who didn't have an integrated brain, who's who didn't have optimal, optimal conditions in infancy and childhood that can be repaired and you can have a more functional nervous system. And Dr. Dan Siegel's work is really very powerful. I've trained with him now. And um, yeah, just don't give up the fight. Mm, beautiful. It's worth, it's worth, I'm, I mean, I went through su some suicidal depression a number of years ago, like severe clinical depression. And I'm on the other side of it. And there's miracles. There's miracles hiding behind every seeming disaster. There's something behind it that you couldn't possibly that couldn't happen if it weren't for the disaster. I think 10 years from now, we're going to look back at COVID and go, oh my God, the changes that came about in society as a result of that. Mm. Change comes when there's intense pressure and we are in a pressure cooker right now. So I say, don't give up and have fun or get back to the fun as soon as you can. Something about that, isn't it? Your, your darkest hour can be your brightest moment. You yeah. Know? can be a connection if you just let yourself go there see the dark yeah. side yeah mm, powerful Darren, thank you so much for coming on i appreciate you it's been fun and uh yeah listen awesome congratulations on the book and, and i look forward to hearing more from you thank you yes you're so welcome it was a pleasure thank you well that was another great episode of fire in the belly you know, this really wouldn't be possible without our great guests taking the time to share their personal journeys. And boy, oh boy, sometimes it is personal. It's an absolute pleasure to have that and then to hear the journeys that people have been on. We've loads more episodes coming up soon and it's always a pleasure to have guests on. If you do happen to know anyone with true fire in their belly, please reach out to us so we can share their journey, lessons and successes. So all that's left to say is have a great day, live with fire in your belly and be the mightiest version of you. 